Revelation chapter 5 in your Bibles is where we left off. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We'll be getting into chapter 6, but I'm going to start here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 to refresh our memories. And while you're turning to Revelation 5, I would like to put before your imagination the horrors of war. Whether you're thinking about World War I and the horror of trench warfare, the long winter in those trenches as the soldiers looked on, as the rats multiplied, eating the corpses of those who had died, as the men struggled with gangrene and were losing limbs, as you think of World War II and the horrors of an entire city being incinerated on August 9th, 1945 through the nuclear bomb. War is ugly. War is horrible. And to think about it on an individual toll, to think about it on a collective toll, since 1800, more than 37 million people have died fighting in wars. And that doesn't take into account all of the deaths from war that are not active military deaths, but come due to the famine, the disease, the destruction of healthcare and facilities, and all of that that also increases the death toll among the civilian population. If you think about World War II, the deadliest war in modern history, there were 15 million deaths in battle in World War II, and then there was estimated around 45 million civilian casualties as a result of the war. That number could possibly be much higher. So 60 million between those killed on the battlefield and those who died as a result of that war. War is full of horror, and we can be thankful that we live in a generation that has largely been spared the horrors of war. You might think, when you think about the terror of war, you might be tempted to come to the conclusion that has been sung about when the question is asked, war, what is it good for? absolutely nothing. Well, in one sense, that's true. But in another sense, war does have a use. And we see that in our text in Revelation chapter 6 today. While we come face to face with the horrors of war, we must recognize that God does have a use for war. And we'll see that as we dig into the text. God is on the throne, and he is in control And this passage this morning that we look at in Revelation 6 might be one of the strongest messages, strongest passages that I've taught on the subject of God's sovereignty. God's throne is mentioned 17 times in Revelation 4 and 5, and it sets the stage for all of the judgments that are going to follow in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is full of terrifying judgments, and they proceed from the throne of God and by the hand of the Lamb as he unseals the sealed book. Remember, the setting for these chapters is future. The book of Revelation, I think the key to it, as we've said already in our study of the opening chapter, is there in verse 19 of Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus Christ tells John to write what he has seen, the vision of Christ, which has already passed by the time that John is writing, what is now, and that's the state of the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and then what will take place after, and that's the future, the consummation of the age as 
Christ returns in judgment, and that judgment begins in Revelation chapter 6, but really chapters 4 and 5 setting the stage for that. And so this morning, we're going to be getting into the main action of the book. The stage has been set. We're in the future, looking at the throne room of God as the judgments and the wrath of God are about to be unleashed upon the world that is in rebellion against him. Because we look at the book this way, that chapters 4 through 22 are yet future, that's going to influence our interpretation of chapter 6, and so I just wanted to remind you that's not the only way that Christians understand this book, that here we take a futurist view of the book of Revelation, saying that the main part of the book, chapters 4 through 22, are completely future, whereas others look at the book and think, well, no, this is something that happened in the past. Others say, well, no, it's something that has been happening all throughout the age. It wasn't just early after it was written, not just shortly after John wrote it, but it's been covering this whole present age in prophecy, and that's the historicist view of the book of Revelation. Then there's also the idealist view that these are not historical events at all, but they're just timeless pictures of the battle between good and evil. So that's four major ways of viewing the book of Revelation, and I'll be teaching the futurist view in light of our study already in Scripture and the first three chapters of the book. Here's the chart that shows you the same thing that was on the previous page. The historicist view, seeing that it's all of this history. The historical view, the preterist, that it's in the past, either in the time of Nero or leading up to the fall of Rome in 476. But we take the futurist position, that it's looking at the 70th week of Daniel, where you have the rapture and the second advent. So that gives you some idea of the different ways of reading the prophecies within the book of Revelation and explaining our approach. We'll defend our approach and explain it more as we continue throughout the book. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The main action of the book begins here with the opening of the sealed book that was introduced to us in chapter 5. As I said, we're going to read 5, 1 through 2 as a review, and then we'll read chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Then the chapter reveals that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he's the one who is worthy. And so then that brings us after the praise and worship of the one on the throne and the Lamb to chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and our subject this morning, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The infamous four horsemen are what kick off the unsealing of this mysterious book. So let's read together Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And then we'll talk about each one of these four horsemen. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, 
and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The unsealing of this book of God's decrees in heaven at a future unspecified time will have dire consequences for those who are living on the earth. We see the lamb in verse 1. We see the book, the seals, as was introduced in the previous chapter. And we see the four living creatures who were also introduced in chapters 4 and 5. And now, as the seals are opened, we have one horseman after another appearing in heaven and being given a task to carry out upon the earth. These four horsemen are drawn from imagery from the book of Zechariah. And we'll get into that as we look at each of them individually. The first horse and its rider is in verse 2, and it is a white horse. The voice-like thunder that the living creature has, this angelic being, a cherubim or a seraphim, they're calling forth with that call to come in this voice that is as powerful as thunder. He brings forth this horse and rider. Now, the first question is, to whom does the living creature say, come? Is he speaking to John, saying, come and see? Or is he speaking to the horse and its rider to come and to ride forth? And I think the second position is the correct position, that he's speaking to the horse and its rider. And that seems most likely for a variety of reasons. However, the King James Version and the New King James Version, relying on certain manuscripts, has not only the word come, but come and see. And if those manuscripts are the correct original reading, then he would be speaking to John to come and see. But the manuscript evidence would point us to thinking that no, that originally it just said come, and that a later scribe added that and see, here not only in verse 2, but with each of the four horses. So he calls for the rider to come, and behold, the white horse. The second question that we have here about the first seal is, who is the rider on the white horse? Notice what it says about him. It says, he had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, many people throughout church history, in fact, it was probably the majority position in the early church, thought that this white rider was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because it talks about him conquering. And in the previous chapters, Jesus Christ has been highlighted as a conqueror. Just in chapter 5, when Christ was introduced, he was introduced as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says that he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Also, when we come to the end of the book, we find a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 riding on a white horse. And so the white horse and the conquering seem to be connected to Jesus Christ within the book, and that would give strong evidence for that identity. However, 
the arguments against identifying this as Jesus Christ are even stronger and more convincing. And that is, first of all, Jesus Christ is the one who is opening the scroll. He is the one who is already present in this scene as the lamb. He doesn't need to be present again as the horseman who is coming forth as a result. You see, he is the actor. He is not the object of the opening of the scrolls. And also, the first horse should be interpreted in a manner that is consistent with the second, third, and fourth. These four are a unity. And as we see, Jesus Christ should not be classed with the second, third, and fourth horses. The fourth horse being death himself. We don't put Christ and death on the the same playing field here. And so we rule out Christ as being the rider of the white horse here in the first seal. Others have thought, well, if it's not Christ, well, then it's probably Antichrist because he also wants to appear like Christ. And the book is going to talk a lot about the beast who is coming, who is going to be promoting a false peace and the kind of conquest that the Antichrist will be engaged in during the 70th week of Daniel, the great tribulation to come, would fit nicely here with the white horse and the white rider imitating Christ as this conqueror going out conquering. Well, that does make a lot of sense. Jesus Christ himself referred to the fact in the Olivet Discourse that many false Christs would come at the end of time. Now, before I show you the verse there in Matthew, I wanted to put this verse up from Zechariah, where you see these horsemen. And there in the night, behold, a man riding on a red horse, standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Don't know what a sorrel horse is. It's kind of a mixture between a brown and a red horse. You see horses that have that brownish red color. That's a sorrel horse. So red, sorrel, white horses. And I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel talked with me and said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So this idea of the Lord sending out patrols into all of the earth is in Zechariah chapter 1. It's also in Zechariah chapter 6. And that seems to be the imagery that is being drawn upon here in Revelation chapter 6 concerning these four horsemen who are going out on the Lord's mission into his earth, God's messengers. And then, as I mentioned, Matthew 24 verse 5 refers to the coming of false Christs. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. Now, as we go through this morning, you're going to notice that the Olivet Discourse, which we studied several years ago together in this pulpit, follows a similar pattern, especially here with these first four horsemen, with the early teaching here in chapter 24, verse 5 is where Christ is just getting into talking about his second coming and the events at the end of the age, that there's a strong parallel between the way Revelation starts talking about the end of the age and the way that Jesus began talking about it. And so if he talked about false Christs there at the beginning, then maybe this also is talking about false Christs. This white horse is perhaps the Antichrist or false Christs in general going out. However, while this is a better position, I think, than the first one, I still don't think it's the best way of viewing the white horse and its rider because, as we will see, horses two, three, and four and their riders are all metaphors. They're all symbolic. They're all spirits. They're not individual people or groups of people. So I think it's best then to interpret the white horse also in a similar fashion to the ones that are going to follow. And so, as we see, 
the white horse is the spirit of conquest, that he goes out and stirs up as a messenger from God in the hearts of mankind a desire to rule over other nations, other peoples. This is a sinful desire that comes in the heart of powerful people and also powerful nations. The desire to dominate, the desire to rule foreign nations. And this first writer is going out into the earth on mission from God to stir up the spirit of conquest among the nations of the world. And this would be evident in people like the Antichrist and his desire to rule over the whole world. And it would also be evident in other false Christs and other nations. So I don't think it should be reserved just to Antichrist. But this is a spirit of conquest among all the nations that God is sending out through this writer. That seems to fit the context the best here. Now, as a transition between this first writer and the second writer... I wanted to remind you of what we also studied a number of years ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We were careful to study Daniel, and we were careful to study the Olivet Discourse, and we were careful to study the Thessalonian epistles and many other parts of Scripture that are important, that are essential for understanding the book of Revelation. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll remember, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church there in this early letter, and he says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so when God sends forth among the nations of the world at some future point, this spirit of conquest so that nations have this desire to go out and conquer, that's when then peace is going to be removed from the earth And that's what we see with the second seal. Look at verses 3 and 4 once again. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. What you'll see here is that one horse leads to the next horse, that these four are building judgment That is the natural course of unfolding when God gives the world over to the spirit of conquest, then there is inevitably going to be war. And when there is war, then there is going to be famine. And where there is war and famine, there is going to be death. Horse one, two, three, and four all build upon one another, and God is sending forth these riders one at a time in order to bring this great sword, as it says at the end of verse 4, upon the earth so that people should slay one another. That word slay one another, that's interesting that it's used here in this context. Not normally the word that is used for kill. This is the same word that was used for Jesus in chapter 5, that he was the lamb who was standing as if slain. It's the word for slaughtering an animal. It's the word for butchering. And so mankind is going to slaughter one another. Mankind is going to butcher one another in war. And this is from God's throne. This is from the decree of God and the judgment of Jesus Christ who is worthy to unseal these divine decrees and to take peace from the earth. This also has a correspondence in the Olivet Discourse, once again, right after verse 5, which we just looked at for the first seal. 
Now we have verses 6 and 7, when Jesus follows up the admonition of the false Christ with this prediction of the war. Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7, Jesus told his disciples, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and that's exactly what we have here with the red horse. It says there in the ESV translation, its writer was permitted to take peace from the earth. That's actually a weak translation. The literal reading is, it was given to him to take peace. The NIV translates it this way, he was given power to take peace from the earth. The New American Standard translates it, it was granted to him to take peace from the earth. And who is it that granted it to him? Who was it that gave it to him? Well, These are divine passives. The crown that was given to the conqueror in the first seal, that is also a divine passive. It is from God that this authority, that this power is given. say, well, how do we know that? Well, it's because this is the throne room of God. This is the unsealing of the book that comes from the right hand of God. This is the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the one who is giving the authority. The one who is on the throne and the lamb gives authority to this rider to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. God does not make people slay one another. God is not responsible for the evil spirit of conquest and domination that is in the heart of man, but God gives people over to the evil that is in their heart and removes the restraint that he has placed upon mankind. What keeps people from slaying and slaughtering one another today? Is it because man is good? Is it because he has an inherent morality in his nature? It is God's gracious gift that prevents people and nations from slaughtering one another like animals in the world today. Think back to before the flood. What does the Bible say the earth was like before the flood came and wiped out humanity? It was filled with violence and bloodshed. And what did God do after the flood in order to prevent that kind of violence and bloodshed from coming back the same way that it was before the flood? He instituted human government. If a man slays another, then by man his blood shall be shed. And so it is God's providence that has created human government. It is God's providence that has sustained the peace, so-called, that we have in the world and that we have enjoyed. It is God's providence that supplies a police force and an army and keeps the nations in a balance of power so that we don't slaughter one another. But know this, murder and bloodshed is in the heart of man. And as soon as God removes the restraint, mankind runs to the battlefield. Mankind runs to destroy one another. And this is God's judgment, giving us over to the sin that is in our hearts. He's not responsible for the sin but he uses it to bring judgment. The Bible says in Isaiah 48 and in Isaiah 57, there is no peace for the wicked. The peace that the world enjoys is really not peace. It is an armistice. An armistice is a cessation of hostilities. It's a pause in violently attacking one another. 
And that's basically what the world enjoys. It enjoys just a pause in the bloodshed from time to time. But whenever God chooses and whenever God wants, he can remove that peace that he has so graciously given that we take for granted, that we think that he owes to us, and he can allow us to have the consequences of our own choices. It's important to understand, to see the world the way that it is, the way that God sees it and understands it. The peace that we have and the peace that is taken away, it's not merely a human decision. It's not even a satanic decision to create war. But it is all part of God's providential decrees. That's what we see, not only in this passage, but throughout Scripture. Now, when God sends that spirit of conquest, and when he takes the peace away from the earth through these horsemen, who are his riders, going out to accomplish his purposes, then what follows is verses 5 through 8. The third horse, there in verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. Notice the repetition. It gives us a somber atmosphere. It gives us a stately, serious tone to this text. The third living creature says, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Scales being what you would weigh with. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat. And a quart would be about what a normal adult person would eat for a day. And a denarius is what you would earn for a day's labor. So the famine that is coming upon the earth, the shortness of supply, the scarcity of bread, is causing an inflation in prices of grain that is perhaps eight to ten times what was normal when this book was being written. That a man could work for a denarius, and a denarius would normally buy you about eight quarts or ten quarts of wheat. But now you get one quart for that. Or you could choose the less expensive grain, barley, which was often reserved for animal feed, if I understand correctly, has less nutritional value, but you could get three quarts of barley for a denarius, and so perhaps you could feed yourself, your wife, and a couple of kids by working, and that's all. You've got nothing saved up, you've got nothing to pay any other bills, you're just buying food to be able to survive. These are conditions that are brought upon the world through the war that is going to come because of the spirit of conquest when he unleashes his judgments. Now, famine is also mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse. Once again, back to Zechariah before we get to Matthew 24 once again. You see that in Zechariah 6, the horses are also present. And in Zechariah 6, we've got a black horse pulling a chariot in verse 2. And then there's also red horses and white horses and dappled horses. So slightly different colors in chapter 6 than what we had in chapter 1. One of the differences is that now we have a black horse. But there in Zechariah 6, the message is basically the same as the first chapter, where the horses are now pulling chariots, and they're going out to the four winds of heaven. Notice four, just like we have four horsemen here after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Presenting themselves before the Lord. That's exactly what we have in Revelation 4 and 5 and chapter 6. We're in this heavenly throne room. The horses are coming forth, and then they're going out on their mission into the earth. In Zechariah, they were going out to patrol. In Revelation chapter 6, they're going out to initiate judgment 
for the day of the Lord. So Zechariah 1, Zechariah 6, important Old Testament background for the four horsemen of the apocalypse. As I mentioned, the Olivet Discourse mentions the false Christ, which many associate with the spirit of conquest with the white horse. It mentions the war breaking out as we read those verses in 6 and 7 corresponding to the red horse. And then in verse 7, he also mentions famine which is here corresponding to the black horse in Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. You'll notice that the other elements are also there in the Olivet Discourse in Revelation chapter 6, as we will get there next week in the fifth seal and the following week with the sixth seal. I want you to see that connection between the Olivet Discourse and Revelation chapter 6, a very strong connection. The fourth horse that we come to, in verses 7 and 8, then, is the natural consequence of the first three. Read it once again. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This fourth horse, the pale horse, is the color of death. We get our word Clorox from this word. Death is personified in this text along with Hades, much like the Grim Reaper. Now, he's not holding a sickle here in Revelation because that's a metaphor, that's an image of death that has been developed after the Bible was written. But death riding on the horse is a grim picture indeed. God sends forth death and Hades, Hades being a reference to Sheol, the grave, for when you die, then you are swallowed up by the grave, and the grave has an endless appetite. According to Proverbs chapter 27 and Proverbs chapter 30, the grave, Sheol, is never satisfied. It opens up its mouth as war breaks out, as famine follows, and it just cries out for more and more corpses. These were given authority. And again, the question comes, who gave death and Hades this authority? Authority is a very important concept in the book of Revelation. You'll find the word authority 15 times in the English Standard Version translation of the book of Revelation. And that's the most out of any New Testament book. There are many who have authority, and there are many who give authority throughout the book. But the ultimate source of authority in Revelation and in every book of the Bible is God. And here, as we are in the heavenly throne room, and Christ is opening the seals, and the horsemen are given authority, even death and Hades given this authority, they are given this authority by God. Another divine passive. Now, I want you to think about authority and how God chooses to give authority. And one of the key verses here for understanding and having a biblical view of authority is in Luke chapter 4, verse 6. Satan is speaking to Jesus here in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, during the time of Jesus' temptation. And Jesus said to him, To you I will give all this authority. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He shows them their glory. He says, Jesus, I will give you all of this authority and their glory For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. So where did Satan get his authority over all the nations? He just says, it has been delivered. Once again, that's a divine passive. God has allowed, if you want to use that term, 
Satan to have authority and dominion over the world because it's in his will and it's in his plan to allow Satan a time. And when Satan's time is done, then that authority will be taken away from him. And that's really what the book of Revelation is all about, the taking away of the authority from Satan and all the men that Satan chooses to give it to, and God taking it back and giving it to the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10 says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. When Christ was on the earth, he was in a humble position. He had emptied himself of his authority, his power, his position. But after Christ's resurrection and his ascension, now he is back in the place of ultimate authority. He rules over all, the universal kingdom of God. And all authority is from God. Romans 13.1 says, There is no authority except from God. This is quite different than the way most people, even religious people or Christian people, think about the world. It's very contrary to what our intuition is about God and Satan. Human intuition, basic religious understanding among mankind is that, yes, God created the world, but Satan has kind of come in and, and taken over. And God is just kind of waiting until he's going to step forward and, and do something about it. But that's not the biblical picture. God is not out of control of natural disasters in the world. God is not out of control of the wars that are in the world. The wars that are happening now, the wars that have happened in the past, the death and the destruction that has come from all of that, don't think that that has been out of God's control or not part of God's plan. I'll remind you of what we talked about in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 5, where God says, It is by my great power and my outstretched arm that have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me, which actually even includes the Antichrist, the beast. God is in control of the rise of the beast. He's in control of the fall of the beast. This is one of the strongest passages on the sovereignty of God. There are many, but this one really made an impact on me this week. As you think about death bringing what he does to a fourth of the earth with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth, recognize that the total number of World War I deaths among the military personnel was about 10 million. About 10 million military men died in World War I. The civilian death toll of World War I is estimated between 6 and 13 million. So it could have been more people, civilian deaths in World War I. And so when death comes through the earth, he's not just killing with the sword, but he's killing with famine and he's killing with pestilence. Two million died from disease during World War I. War brings disease. And as areas are depopulated, as mankind is displaced, wild beasts of the earth take back over and become a danger once again. This is common in passages about God's judgment, this description of death even by the wild beasts of the earth. So let's take a look at four principles here about these judgments 
in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, that we can draw application from. And the first principle I want us to understand, and we've already hit this pretty well, is that these are day of the Lord judgments. This is not merely talking about wars throughout human history. It's not saying, well, you know, there was the War of 1812, and there was the Revolutionary War, and there was the Civil War, and there was World War I, and there was World War II, and, and this is just talking about how God uses war throughout history. No. This is on another level, this is on another scale, and its connection with the Olivet Discourse and its flow in what is coming in the rest of the book of Revelation shows this is not just talking about war as we generally think of it, as we generally know it and experience it in the world. No, but this is referring to the future day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? I'll remind you, the day of the Lord is the time when God shows his power to those who do not believe in him. Egypt was an example, a precursor, prototype of the day of the Lord, where God revealed his judgments in a special and awesome way. The Old Testament day of the Lord that the prophets spoke of. And then this cataclysmic worldwide judgment that is the ultimate day of the Lord, which not only the Old Testament prophets, but the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles have spoken much about. That's what we see here beginning in Revelation chapter 6. Now, these day of the Lord judgments, they are spoken about in the Old Testament in a similar way. This is very much in keeping with what the Old Testament predicted about the day of the Lord. As Ezekiel wrote in chapter 5, I will send famine. Does that sound familiar? Wild beasts. They will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And as we had in our scripture reading in Ezekiel chapter 14, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem, how many? Four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. That's slightly different in the way that it's presented here, but still that basic idea of God having his day of judgment and doing it through sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. There's a German phrase that I've used before with you that I think is helpful to be reminded of, and that is, die Weltgeschichte ist das Weltgericht. And what that means, and I like saying it, it's fun to say, die Weltgeschichte ist das Weltgericht. What that means is, the world's history is the world's final judgment. I believe that comes from Hegel's works. And as mankind has looked at his history, sometimes he's gotten that idea, that picture, that this world is all the hell that there really needs to be. That when you look at the hell that comes as a result of war, you think, well, what further need is there of God's wrath and judgment? The world's history is the world's judgment. Man's own inhumanity to man, that's what hell is. And you know what? That's partly true. The world's history is the world's final judgment, and it's not going to get better it's going to get worse. There is a war that is going to make World War II look like small stuff. And God is going to use human history to be his instruments of judgment upon mankind. But what Hegel does not realize, and what we must know as we continue to read through the book of Revelation and understand all of Scripture, is that that's not the end of God's wrath. That's the beginning of God's wrath. This sending of war, this sending of pestilence, this sending of famine, this sending of the wild beast to destroy your children, that's not the end of God's judgment. 
that's only the beginning of birth pangs. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ, once again from the Olivet Discourse. After he talks about the wars and the rumors of wars, he says, the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. If you think this message is serious, if you think this message is hard, we're just getting warmed up. We're just getting started in the book of Revelation. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, as terrifying as they are, they're just the beginning of birth pangs. And if you're a woman and you've been through labor and you know what the beginning of birth pangs are and you know how to compare those to the labor pains at the very end of childbirth, then you have some idea of what Jesus is talking about. So that brings us to number two. God is majestic and fearful in his sovereignty. The four horsemen are under the sovereign control of God and the Lamb. God rules over the political world. He rules over the economic world. He rules over the viruses and the bacteria that kill, even human-engineered viruses that kill. And people wonder, how can God allow this? How can a loving God send such devastating horrors upon his creation? Now listen again to the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah saw the horrors of war. He felt the horrors of starvation in the city of Jerusalem as it was surrounded by armies. He saw women eating their own children to survive. And he said, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both adversity and good proceed? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both adversity and good proceed? God is sovereign over evil. God is sovereign over war, over death, over disease. It's important for us to have a biblical worldview. I want to read for you a quote. This book helps us to purge us of our fantasies concerning God. God is not whatever we would like him to be. God is who he is. He is the creator and the almighty, glimpsed in the heavenly worship of chapters 4 and 5. He is power indeed, but not a power that is at human disposal or human control. And he is also the lamb, the slaughtered victim as victor. If the image of the all-powerful creator frees us from our sentimentalism concerning God, the image of the lamb frees us from our fear. Let us make no mistake. Let us not be sentimental. God is a God of wrath. As we've embarked on this study in Revelation, we will get a full glimpse, a full picture of what it means to have a God of wrath. I can empathize with those Christians and those theologians who want to say that God merely permits but does not cause such events. I can understand that desire. But this text and countless others clearly state the contrary. And instead of examining God and asking about the justice of his ways, we should ask, 
what moral standing do we have to question God on this matter? Once again, the book of Lamentations. This is the New American Standard Version. Of what can any living mortal or any man complain in view of his sins? Let's examine and search our ways. And let's return to the Lord. We raise our heart and hands toward God in heaven. We have done wrong and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not spared. That's Lamentations 3, verses 39 through 43. Does God owe us peace? Does God owe us a supply of bread? Does God owe us health and freedom from disease? We tend to think so, and we're thinking wrong. God does not owe us any of these things. All of them are a gift of grace and mercy. And if God chooses to remove those things, he has done you no wrong. You're a living man. You're a mortal. Can you complain before God in view of your sins? Instead of examining God, maybe you need to examine and search out your own ways. And maybe you need to return to the Lord. Raise your hearts and your hands towards the God in heaven and call upon the mercy and grace of the Lamb. And then finally, the fourth point I want to end with here this morning is that we need to see the world as God sees it, and that's as judgment worthy. And as we see the world as judgment worthy, then we will remember to not love the world or the things in the world. Amen? Remember that Jesus Christ said, he who loves his life in this world will lose it. And remember the exhortation to go out from their midst and be separate from them. And set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the final word that I'd like to leave with you this morning as application, remember Lot's wife. Let's pray. Father God, it's a sober word that you have given to us this morning through your servant, John. It's hard. It's difficult. But it shouldn't be. It's only hard and difficult because we're worldly in our thinking. We're too much conformed to the viewpoint of sinners who are in rebellion against you. And who think that we are owed everything that is good. Father, we pray that we would understand your sovereignty and your dreadful majesty. And that we would humble ourselves before you. Lord, may we have a different spirit than the spirit that is in the world. And may we be conformed to the heart of Christ. And to the heart of true Christians down throughout the ages who longed for and prayed for the day of the Lord to come. Lord, we know you don't delight in the death of the wicked and we don't want to delight in anyone's judgment. But Lord, we do delight in your righteousness. And we even rejoice in your just wrath. And we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, even though it means the coming of the four horsemen. It means the coming of war. It means the coming of famine. It means the coming of pestilence. It means the coming of death before those things are done away with. 
once and for all by our conquering Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.